0: If you would turn in your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 10, that's where we're going to be in our passage today. We are going through a short uh, four-week series on the topic of the church, and uh, we talked last week about the the church, what is the church, and unity uh, within the church, and unity with Christians and whatnot. This week, we are moving on and we're talking about the topic of why commit to a church. And uh, so we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. If uh, you are familiar with the book of Hebrews, you know that there are significant portions of uh, pretty intense doctrine that are being discussed here. And the thrust of that doctrine, if I could sum it up, is that Christ is superior. He's superior to everything uh that uh these hebrews were tempted to go back to they were tempted to go back to the law and to moses and and uh our author is arguing jesus is superior to the law and he's superior to moses and he is superior to the offerings that went with that old covenant. And his covenant is superior to that old covenant. And Jesus is superior. And so he comes to the end of that section in uh, in making that very powerful argument. And we come to our passage in chapter 10. And I'm going to read verses 19 through 25 for us. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter... Father, as we come to you this morning, we are reminded of these great truths. We are reminded of Jesus and that he is superior. He is superior to the law. He is superior to Moses. He's superior to the offerings that have come before. He's superior. He is the ultimate. There is none like him. And so we quiet our hearts this morning and we, we take a step out of our regular week. We've been busy this week and we will be busy next week. And we encountered very distracting things this past week. And we will encounter very distracting things upcoming. But for this moment, for this time, we've set aside this opportunity to not think about those things, but think about you instead and think about Jesus instead. Think about what has been done for us by him on the cross And to think about what that means for our lives. And so, Father, we submit ourselves to you this morning and we quiet our hearts and ask that you, by your spirit, would quiet our hearts. Help us not to be distracted. Help us not to contemplate those other things. But help us to see what is real and valuable and true in Christ. So as we have your word open, and as we discuss the church, and as we discuss our commitment to the church, we ask for your blessing on this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was in the eighth grade, and uh, Mr. Paul Hines was my English teacher, but this story is not about my time in his class, though I could tell stories there too. But I was in algebra. And I was struggling through algebra and felt honored to be in algebra in the eighth grade and then I realized that it was tough and, and so I remember very clearly one night that year, uh, being, uh, lie, lying on the floor in my living room, my parents house of course, doing homework and I, they have the answers in the back of the book, which I thought was a great thing about algebra, because the answers right there. But then they want you to show your work, how you got there, and I could never—you know—you had to put those two together. So I was—I uh, would do my work and I get it wrong. I do my work and get it wrong. So finally, when a when a uh, opportunity came, my dad was sitting there and we were watching TV it, while I was doing homework. Might explain why algebra was difficult for me. <laughs> but, maybe. <laughs> so. Uh, but I, I, I said to my dad, I said, here's here's this problem, and I can't figure it out. And so he said, well, what is it? And I explained it to him, and we were trying to figure out the, the square footage of a, of a um, sidewalk that would be around the outside of a pool. And the pool was this dimensions and the, uh, all that stuff. And we had to figure out the square footage of the sidewalk. And I kept getting it wrong and getting it wrong and getting it wrong. So I said that to my dad. Gave him the dimensions, and he sat there, and, and he, you know, he had his legs crossed. He's watching TV, and he's got his hands folded, not moving at all. When the next commercial came, he told me the answer. He hadn't moved a muscle. He hadn't written a thing down. He hadn't consulted a calculator or anything else. He just figured it out. And so I realized at that point something I should have known long before, and that's that he was a great resource. <laughs> he was... Here he was some kind of math whiz, and I hadn't even been asking him questions. I could have been, you know, having an easier time of school before that. But he was a great resource, and he was an untapped resource because I hadn't been asking him. I hadn't been consulting him and finding out from him. I hadn't been taking advantage of this great opportunity, this great blessing that I had uh, that was my dad who could figure out such things while watching TV and without moving a muscle. And our passage today is is uh, sort of on that topic of untapped resources. We we move into our passage here. And as I said, we are discussing, uh, our author has been discussing these doctrinal points. And it's not just doctrine for the sake of doctrine, but it's doctrine that has significance in your life. And uh, so we have a f- couple of gospel blessings that he's going to begin by focusing on. And that first gospel blessing is that we have confidence to enter. We have confidence to enter. So I read from verses 19 and 20, therefore brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is through His flesh. The first gospel blessing is that we have confidence to enter. Now you might ask the question, why do we need confidence to enter? Well, God is holy. And you learn from the Old Testament that you get to enter into his presence in the way he prescribes. And in the Holy of Holies, which was sort of the seat of his presence, one person got to enter one time of year. That was the high priest. And only once a year, and he could enter, and it was under certain circumstances. And so the presence of God is a very precious Thing. It's uh, God is holy, and so not just anyone is allowed into that. And so, even the high priest—you can imagine—if you—if you were the high priest for the entire nation of Israel, and you got to enter into God's presence in that sense once per year, and under certain circumstances, and having met certain requirements and made certain offerings—you'd be nervous. You'd be nervous. And yet, our author says that we. We're not high priests. We're not the one guy in the entire nation. We have confidence to enter. Well, how is it that we can have confidence to enter when the Jewish high priest would be shaking in his sandals to enter? How can we have confidence? Well, by the blood of Jesus. It's by the blood of Jesus that we can have confidence to enter. Look back in uh, chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. For when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. We have confidence to enter in because of the blood of Christ. Because of what he has done, the sacrifice that he has made, we are able to have that kind of entrance. You see, the high priest would make sacrifices this one day of of the year when he was going in, Yom Kippur, when he was uh, going into the Holy of Holies. He would have to make animal sacrifices, and it was because of the blood of those sacrifices that he was able to go in. But with Jesus, he makes that sacrifice of himself. And so it's his blood that gains us entrance by means of Jesus' own blood and thus securing an eternal redemption. And so the result is that Christ has opened a way for us to have access to God, directly into God's presence in Christ. And so when he says here that we have confidence to enter, I don't think we understand the privilege that that is. I don't think we comprehend what what the Jews comprehended, what, what the readers of this would have comprehended who had for 1,500 years or had, had been learning God is holy and one person gets to go into his presence once a year. And now you and I stand here and we can come into his presence. We can be in the very presence of God. What a privilege that we can have confidence to enter in like that. Because of what Christ has done. And so he says, first of all, the first great gospel blessing is that we have confidence to enter, to come into God's presence in that way. And there's a a second gospel blessing, and that is that we have a great high priest. Look at verse 21, back in chapter 10. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, he's been making arguments throughout uh, the book up to this point, that Jesus is superior and and uh, he's, he's also a superior priest. Why do we need a priest who's superior to Israel's priests? Why do we need that? Why not just copy their priesthood? Why not just continue their priesthood? Why do we need a superior priest? Well, for, for three reasons. First of all, Israelite priests were flawed in that they were mortal. So they would die and then need to be replaced. So their ministry was only for a certain period of time. It had a certain duration and then they would have to be replaced. So they were mortal. They died. Second of all, uh, their ministry was flawed and their priesthood was flawed because they themselves had sin. And so when they would go to offer atonement, to offer sacrifice for others, they would actually have to offer it for themselves first. Because they themselves were sinners and therefore imperfect mediators of that covenant. So they were flawed in that they were sinful. And thirdly, the covenant they administered could never perfect people. They would have to come back with another offering for sin. Another offering for sin. Another offering for sin. Forever. Their covenant could not perfect people. And so we have this limitation that is uh, their their uh, priesthood, their ministry was severely limited. And so Jesus, our great high priest, is without sin. And having died once and been raised from the dead, he will never die again. And so he continues forever as a priest functioning in that office. And the covenant that he administers is far far greater than the Old Covenant. Flip back me with me, if you would, to uh, chapter 8, looking at verse 10. So how is the covenant, how is the new covenant superior to the Old Covenant? How is the covenant that Jesus administers superior, greater than, better than, more excellent than the Old Covenant? Verse 10 in chapter 8. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The law was no, is no longer to be outside of us. It's something that God applies within us. He makes us his people. He makes himself our God. And so this new covenant has a, a far greater Uh, Degree of relationship between God and the members of the covenant. And it's an internal relationship. It's not an external relationship where the law is outside of us. He actually puts it within us so that we relate to God based upon the changes that he has wrought within us. And so we see that the priesthood held by any man is fatally flawed because of his sinfulness, because of uh, his mortality. But our priest is of a different sort altogether. Our priest is holy and righteous and utterly without sin. And our priest will never die again and he will never need to be replaced. He serves as the perfect, undying, effective priest. And so he can say in chapter 7 and verse 25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Our priest is perfect. And he perfectly accomplishes this covenant on our behalf. Why would we ever want a different priesthood? Why would we ever seek a different priesthood than the one that Jesus himself administers? He is our great high priest. So that's the doctrine. He's summing up what he's argued before, right? He's talking about doctrine. And uh, just as in all situations in the Christian life, our behavior is governed by, is determined by our doctrine. And the doctrine that we study, the doctrine that we understand from scripture, informs and directs the behavior of our lives. And that's the same exact situation in this passage. So we have these two great gospel truths that, that we have confidence to enter into God's presence and we have Jesus as our great high priest and therefore it means certain things for our lives. So what are those Uh, what, What are those areas of significance in our lives? Well, first of all, since we have such unparalleled gospel blessings, we must draw near to God. We must draw near to God. The idea is in worship. Drawing near in worship. He says there in verse 22, In verse 19, he says, since we have confidence to enter, verse 22, uh, verse 21, since we have a great priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near. Let us draw. Let's let's approach him. We have the approach. We have confidence to enter. We have a priest who mediates between the two of us. And so let's draw near. Well, in what manner are we to draw near? First of all, with loyal trust. With loyal trust, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With a true heart. It's talking about trust. It's talking about loyalty. It's talking about, about Him and our trust in Him. The, Hebrews mentions the heart numerous times, and I could list them all out for you, but I'll summarize them. Basically, in the in the conversations of the heart in the Book of Hebrews, Israel in the Old Testament had a hard and straying heart when they were rebelled against God in the wilderness. That's a kind of heart. A hard and straying heart, right? And in chapter 3, believers are warned uh, against having an evil, unbelieving heart that would lead them to fall away. So an evil, unbelieving heart. So you've got the idea of a heart that's hard and straying, rebels against God. An evil, unbelieving heart doesn't want to believe what God says, but instead wants something else. And, And our author instead says we are to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. A true heart is one that's loyal in its love. It's loyal to God as its highest love. The allegiance, by the way, is rooted in what God has done. The allegiance is rooted in who God is. In Christians, we are to draw near with a true heart. We're exhorted to draw near in full assurance of faith, a complete faith and complete trust in God. And the point isn't so much emphasizing our faith as if our faith uh, were amazing, or very strong, or uh, a wonderful thing, or specially powerful, or had certain aspects to it. The emphasis is on how great he is, and therefore I look to him. Therefore I look to him, since he is good, since he accomplishes what he says he will accomplish. I look to him because of who he is and what he has done, and so he has my loyalty. Because He is wonderful. The kind of worship that's acceptable to God comes from a heart that has been made loyal by Christ, which looks to Him for His salvation. To Him alone for salvation. So we are to draw near to God with a loyal trust, but, but with what means can we gain entrance? Well, with purification by Christ. How can we have this relationship? How can we have this kind of uh, worship with Christ? Well, we do so because we have purification by Christ. There's language here used in uh, the second half of 22 that's important for us. Draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water at the beginning of the Mosaic Covenant, back in Exodus 24, when the people agreed that they would keep the covenant, do you know what Moses did? He sprinkled them with blood. To indicate, you are now members, you are now part of this covenant, you have agreed, and you are now bound to this covenant. He took the blood of the animal sacrifices and he sprinkled it upon them. Of course, they agreed to obey, but did they? No, they they didn't obey. They actually rebelled, right? And the covenant that they agreed to actually could not perfect them anyway. Therefore, much later, the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 36, he foretold the coming of the new covenant in which God said that he would sprinkle clean water and make his people clean from all their uncleanness. That he would give them a new heart. That he would put a new spirit within them. He said he would remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a a responsive, beating, living heart of flesh within them. He would sprinkle them clean. So just as there was a sprinkling at the giving of the old covenant, so there will be a sprinkling at the giving of the new covenant. Their hearts are sprinkled from an evil conscience and their bodies are washed with pure water. They've been cleansed. We in the new covenant have been cleansed. And so the only way that we can draw near to God is because of the purification that is ours in Christ. We get to draw near because of what he's done and what he has done within us, making it possible for us to draw near. And so I find it interesting that there's a command here. There's an instruction, let us draw near. Like an an encouragement, like let's do it. Let's go, because you'd think we would just like immediately take advantage of that. And there are various reasons why we don't, but I think one of them is similar to, uh, our youngest child, Brennan. We were uh, recently in Canada, went up there for Christmas, which by the way, if you're going to drive to Canada, don't do it at Christmas. It's cold up there. But we went up there to visit Stephanie's parents and, and so of course the, the grandparents, Stephanie's parents love our children and, and have, you know, a great investment as grandparents are tend to, you know, do and, and things like that. But Brennan is too. He doesn't hardly remember them at all, if at all. And so when we show up, they, they're wanting to show affection. And he has full right to, to run into their arms. This is grandma and grandpa, right? He has full right to do that and yet he doesn't. There's, there's a, there's a distance. He's not quite sure. He's, he, he doesn't understand or he doesn't know them or, and yet, so we were there for five days and of course, Grandparents, you know, stay after the child and keep relating to the child and keep, you know, trying to woo Brennan and, and of course, succeeded. And so by the end of the time, of course, you could hardly tear Brennan away from particularly his grandpa. He had the ability to draw near. But it took some time. It took some time to draw near. But we are encouraged to draw near. Like little Brennan with his grandparents, we as Christians get to draw near to God, trusting Uh, What he has already done and taking advantage of the way that he has opened for us. And so, Christian, we need to make drawing near. We need to make uh, regular worship a normal part of our lives, a normal part of our day, even that we would draw near, that we would take advantage of that opportunity. We worship god when we when we read his word when we when we pray when we uh, maybe maybe sing uh, we're worshiping him, we're communing with him, we're spending special time with him, and why do we do that because he's our God, and the way has been opened. He is such a great high priest let's take advantage of what he's given us, but maybe you're maybe you're so busy with uh your job with your work, with your life that you feel you You couldn't possibly find time in your day to draw near to God. You don't have to commit two hours to it. But you need to draw near. You need to set aside time and draw near to God. You were created to worship. You were created to worship God. And Christ has opened the way for us to be able to do so freely so that we might enter into God's presence and receive mercy and find help in time of need. Do you need mercy and help in time of need, Christian? Oh, yeah. Draw near to God that you might find that. Christian, in light of the lavish gospel blessings that are ours in Christ, we should make drawing near to God in faith a daily priority. Draw near to God. Commune with God. I'm not saying how much you need to read or pray or any of those things. That's not my point. My point is you're like baby Brennan. You're at grandma's house. Go hang out with grandma. You are a child of God. He has made the way open to you. Spend time with your father. Spend time with your father. The second implication of our passage today is that since we have such unparalleled gospel blessings, we must hold fast our confession. Hold fast our confession. First of all, how how should we hold fast our confession? Well, without wavering. Without wavering. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. The, recipient, the recipients of this letter, the Hebrews that were being written to, they had faced persecution before. And they had endured it. They had stood up. They had borne up under it. They had survived it, and their faith had survived it. And they had lost property perhaps, they had lost relationships perhaps, Uh, other difficult situations, they had gone through it, and now it's looming again. Difficult times are looming again. And they're wondering, "Can, can we bear up again? Can I bear up again when they come to take my house? When they come to destroy my things, when they threaten my life, when they threaten my family, can I bear up? Or should I even try? Should I even try? The trial had been that intense and they expected the trial would be that intense once again. And so what were they going to do? These were Jewish Christians. And so they were thinking, well, if we just cut the Christian part off of our name, if we just go back to no longer identifying as as Christians and having put away these things that go with the old covenant, if we instead go back to the old covenant, because we had we had a priesthood there, too. And and we had offerings and, and we had sacrifices and, and we had the law and we had, you know, we had Moses. So we could set aside Jesus and go back to this because socially speaking, it was more acceptable just to be a Jew than it was to be a Christian. And so they were debating leaving Jesus behind, essentially, going back to the old covenant Going back to the way things were. And they were they were contemplating that. And so the encouragement that he writes, the exhortation that he gives, is that you need to hold fast your confession of hope without wavering. Stand on it. Stand on it. Stay there. Stand on it. Don't move without wavering. You know, I like to uh, I like to tease about my singing, and um, but I'll tell you part of my problem with singing is that uh, it's not just that I'm not very good at it, which is a part of the problem, but it's that I have a loud voice, and if I try to sing quietly, I guarantee you it will be terrible. Okay, just terrible. You won't want to hear it, but at least it was quiet when you heard it, you know, the terrible singing. So, in order for me to sing well, sometimes, and it doesn't always work out. But I always have to be singing loudly in order for it to work out. And so the, I, I feel bad for the Fredericks today sitting in front of me because they got to hear me singing. And uh, because I sing loudly, because sometimes it works out and then it sounds great. But that will only ever happen if I'm committed. That will only ever happen if I am unwavering in my commitment to sing that song. I'm going to sing it loudly. I'm going to be committed. And maybe it'll go okay. Because I sing like I golf. You know, every now and again it works out really well. I think, hey, why don't I do that more often? But the problem is I'm singing very loudly and when I mess up, then other people get to hear that also. It takes commitment. If, I, if I'm wavering in my singing, it will never work out, I promise you. You won't want to hear me sing. But if I commit, if I am all in, I am going to sing this song as best I can and I'm going to hope for the best. And the people around me are hoping for the best as well. But that, that's kind of what's going on here. Is We need to commit without wavering. Be all in. Be all in. Maintain, hold fast the confession of your hope. Be all in. Either Jesus is superior or he is not superior. And you're making a determination about that with your life. With your choices. The testimony of Scripture and the testimony of the believer is that Jesus is superior. So be all in and don't waver from Him. Hold fast to the Christ of the Bible. So why are we able to do that? Because He is unwavering. Look at the second half of 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful because he himself is unwavering. He and he alone is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for the saints. Hope in him can be unwavering because he doesn't waver. He promised to his people, and it says, he who promises faithful... He who promised that he would sprinkle clean water and make his people to be clean from their uncleanness and who promised that he would give them a new heart and a new spirit and who promised to remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh and he who promised to put his spirit within them is faithful and has kept those promises. He who promised to put his law in their hearts and minds, that he would be their God and they his people, that God, that promiser is faithful. And he keeps his promise. And so we are able to trust in him. Because he is unwavering. We should and can hold the confession of our hope without wavering because he who is our hope is unwavering so our application here is where's your hope where is your hope the nature of temptation is that it it presents an alternative hope for something that you're looking for maybe it's uh, maybe it's you hope you can live a more comfortable life if you follow this temptation maybe it's that you hope you can have more fulfillment if you follow this temptation, maybe it's you, you hope that you you will have more pleasure than you than you have in life right now. If you follow this temptation. Where is your hope? You may be tempted to compromise in the area of your faith. Because you found a lifestyle that you hope will be an easier way to live. It's not always easy to live as a Christian, is it? The things you say yes to and the things you say no to are different than what our culture would sell us. And maybe you're tempted to make your life a little bit easier by compromising in the area of your faith. Maybe you've found something to hope uh, to hope in for more pleasure or maybe more personal gratification or satisfaction or aggrandizement or something. Where's your hope? Your temptation that you face is about hope and how you deal with that. Will you buy into some object of hope that pits itself against the hope that is Christ? Or will you hope in the faithful one? Christian, hold tight to your confession of hope. Jesus doesn't waver. He doesn't falter. He doesn't fail. And so where is your hope? There can be no hope that can compare with Jesus. Hope in him. There's a third implication of these two great gospel truths. Since we have such unparalleled gospel blessings, we must encourage one another. Encourage one another. How? How can we encourage one another? Well, first of all, by continuing to meet together. By continuing to meet together. Look at verse 25. I'll start in verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another. To love and good works, encourage one another. In other words, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. The idea of neglecting here—some of your versions say abandoning, forsaking—and that's that's what the word intends to convey. You have a commitment in this relationship, but you are denying that commitment, and you're going the other way. You have a, you have uh, these people need you, but 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 you're unwilling to meet that need. That's the wording that's being used here. Don't forsake the gathering together. Don't abandon your commitment to the church. Because we are called to encourage one another. And one of the great ways that we encourage one another is by being here together. By talking to one another together as a church about Christ. About your life. About the Bible. About what God is doing. About what you hope God does. We encourage one another in that way by meeting together, by being together. And, of course, you're all familiar with the illustration of hot coals, right? A pile of red hot coals, if they're piled together, will stay hot for a long time. And you take one of those coals and set it over here by itself, which is going to dim first, the one coal or the pile? Of course, the one coal. And which one will you be able to pick up with your hand first, the one coal or the pile? Of course, it's the one coal. And so we're exhorted to pile together weekly. We're exhorted to be together, to keep one another stoked, to keep one another sharp, to keep one another's eyes fixed on Christ. That's a great reason why we are here is to encourage one another in that way. Left alone, we cool down and our light wanes. And so we need to be together weekly so that we can keep our intensity for the Lord. So that's, That's how we do it. But how else do we do it? Or how how do we accomplish that even when when we're together? Well, by exhorting one another. Look at the second half of verse 25. By encouraging one another. Meet together as is a habit of some, but encouraging one another. The word encourage and the word exhort, and some versions have exhort here and some say encourage. It's the same Greek word. I, I coached. Uh, crossfit for a few years and part of my job as a coach was to be a cheerleader to be an encourager right because people are sweating and they think they're dying you know and and they're not you know but but you you're trying to encourage them to keep going even though they don't think they can so you're just telling them you're doing great you're doing great stick with it just keep going that's encouraging right i'm trying to encourage them to keep going but i'm also a coach in that if i see them doing something with bad form, they're gonna hurt themselves, they're doing something poorly. What do I do? Well, I, 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 correct them. I don't want them to hurt themselves. So I correct them. I straighten this thing out. I make this adjudgment, this adjustment, right? And so that's exhortation. It's the same person and really the same role. Encouraging at times, you can do this. You are, you're, you're killing it. Keep going. And at other times, let's make this correction. Let's make that change because I don't want you to hurt yourself. Exhortation, And that's the idea that uh, that we have going on in this passage. Christians, we are to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. We should be thinking and praying about our brothers and sisters in the church, wondering how we can help them move forward in the Lord. And that, that requires a few things on our behalf, and I'll just go through these very briefly. First of all, I need to uh, have a, an adequate knowledge of where that person really is spiritually, which means I need to know that person well enough to know what their needs are, what their spiritual needs are. Secondly, it takes some forethought about that person. I've got to think about them and think about what what exhortation or what encouragement they might need. And then it takes courage on my part to go and do that, to go and say that. It takes courage to address that situation. And at the same time, it takes a willingness to endure the discomfort that sometimes comes from being stirred up Right? The idea of stirred up is like there's a stick poking and twisting. Who likes that? Right? No one likes that. To be stirred up. And so you're volunteering to be the one to endure the discomfort that comes with that being stirred up. So those are some things that are required of us in order to be able to exhort one another. And we're encouraged to do that. We're to be together. Intentionally for the purpose of exhorting, I mean, encouraging one another to continue to pursue after Christ, to keep our eyes fixed on Him. And how do we maintain that priority of encouraging one another? By contemplating the end. Look at the end of 25. I'll read all of 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. By keeping your eyes fixed on the end. The day of the Lord is where opportunity for spiritual growth ceases. God will call in all accounts. Judgment will be rendered. Rewards will be given. It's the end. That's the finality. The day of the Lord draws near. This is... This is an emphasis of the book of Hebrews. There are some difficult passages in Hebrews 3 and then a difficult one coming up in 10. There's a difficult one in 6. And here's the reason why. Hebrews takes a very practical view of a person's salvation. And says, look, there might be people in your midst who say they're Christians. They're at church with you regularly. They say they're Christians. They 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 act like Christians. You can't really you, you don't discern a, 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 a distinction between them and and uh, and you. They might even think they're Christians. But the fact remains that for some people who fulfill all of those requirements, they claim to be Christians, they think they're Christians and they act like Christians, they may in fact not be. This may be something they're doing for a time, something they're excited about for other reasons. That that this is a part of their life, this is a truth for them now. And yet, at some point in the future, it's possible circumstances could change. It's possible their desires could change. It's possible that it could be revealed that in fact they were not truly believers at that point. And Hebrews is, is very practical in this. He's saying, you don't know who those people are. And so what do you do? Do you throw up your hands and say, well, it's not worth it? encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What he's saying is, while we are together, let's be committed to be together regularly, and let's encourage one another in Christ. Let's share the gospel with each other. Let's preach the gospel to one another. Let's talk about Christ. Let's exhort people to follow him. Because it may come that this person who meets all of these requirements, but who is in fact not a believer... Maybe next week, because of the exhortation in church, maybe because of a Sunday school lesson that was about the gospel, maybe because of the, the continued ministry of the church to this person, that person will come to a point where they realize, uh, this, this is real and I need to trust Christ. And how do we know, Christian, whether that will be this week or next week? Or the week after? We don't know. We don't know. And so we continue to meet together and we continue to exhort one another. We continue to direct one another towards Christ. The question today is, why commit to a church? This is why. God has opened a door for us. The curtain is the language he uses. The curtain through the blood of Christ. Jesus' very body torn for us so that we can have access into into God's presence. And we have such a high priest who accomplishes his ministry on our behalf, who administers the new covenant to us, who is faithful, who never fails. We have a perfect gospel. But not everyone believes it. It's not the fault of the gospel. And we don't always know who those people are. And so we continue to hold up this fabulous gospel, this, this glorious gospel of Christ. We continue to hold that up and exhort one another. Trust Christ, trust Christ, trust Christ. Look to Him. Put away those things that would distract you from Him. Keep your eyes fixed on Him. Pursue Christ. Week after week after week after week, we, we encourage each other with this. Because we don't know. There may be someone in our midst They're not trying to deceive us, maybe. Maybe they're just, they think, well, I guess this is Christianity, and I guess I'm one of those, and there's no change of heart. And maybe after the 42nd time of hearing the gospel, maybe after the 93rd time of someone encouraging them to trust Christ, holding up the gospel and what God has done, maybe that person will bow the knee and trust Christ and become a child of God for the first time. And so why commit to a church? These are the reasons so we can encourage each other so that we can we can keep one another's eyes fixed. And by doing so, I keep my eyes fixed on Christ together for his glory and for our good. That's why we commit to a church because the time of judgment really is coming. And their opportunity will be gone. Opportunity is now. Today is the day. Today is the day of salvation. And today is the day for us to encourage one another to follow after Christ. I'm going to close in prayer now. And uh, there will be a, a team of uh, prayers who are up front after the service. They would love to pray with you about great things, about small things. They would love to pray with you. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice, I rejoice that I I have such gospel blessings in Christ that I have confidence to enter into your presence. I who am fallen, sinful, I who am finite, I get to come into the presence of holy God. Having been sprinkled clean, having a great high priest ministering on my behalf, I get to come into your presence. I rejoice in that. And I, I, I worship you for that. And Father, I pray for our church and I pray for each one here that we would take advantage of that way that has been open for us in Christ, that we would, that we would draw near to you. That we would rejoice in this great high priest that we have and the covenant that he ministers to us. And that we would encourage one another the same direction. Father, may we grow in intensity. May we grow in passion for the truth of the gospel. And may we encourage each other and exhort one another the same direction. And may you bring about great growth and change and your blessings in our lives as we do so. And for those people who are in our midst. Who sure seem like they're of us and yet are not of us. I pray that your gospel would break through and you would draw them to yourself finally. That they would know you. That they too would have confidence to enter into your presence. That they too would have Jesus as their great high priest. So Father we rejoice. We rejoice. We rejoice in this gospel. We rejoice in these blessings. And we want to exhort one another, and encourage one another. We want to hold fast our confession of hope without wavering. We want to stir one another up. We want to encourage each other. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless you all. Amen. And you are dismissed.